Today's show is sponsored by Sambucol. There's nothing more important than taking care of yourself. If you're not feeling your best, it's hard to be your best. Sambucol offers powerful immune support with nature's superfruit, black elderberry. My neighbor was the first person to tell me about black elderberry. She loves it so much that she even advertises elderberry on a sign in her front lawn. Nothing makes her feel better, she says. And Sambucol makes taking elderberry easy. I've been trying the elderberry gummies. They are extremely tasty. They almost taste like a dessert. I just add them to the vitamins that I take every morning. If you want to give it a try, you can get 15% off your order of $9.99 or more at sambucolusa.com. When you're there, use the promo code BITTERSWEET15. That's sambucol, spelled S-A-M-B-U-C-O-L, sambucolusa.com. And use the code BITTERSWEET15. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today, we are... Responding to the fact that a huge bunch of you have sent us all variations of the same article in the last uh, week, week and a half. And this is an article about a villa that is going up for auction in Rome. In fact, we're recording this right before it goes up for auction, but it's going up for auction on January 18th. So maybe by the time this airs, we'll know more about how it went. But because you kept sending me this article and asking me to share it with Tiffany and urging Tiffany to go see this villa before it gets auctioned, we figured we would actually talk a little bit about this story. So Tiffany, uh, can you introduce to us maybe the premise of what this villa is? Okay, so it's called Villa. Now, today it's called Villa Aurora. I think it may have had other names in the past. And it is on Via Veneto or right off of Via Veneto. And that area of Rome is, the way that it is today, is rather new compared to a lot of the other parts of Rome. Via Veneto was built, I want to say, in the, around the turn of the century, maybe, the turn of the last century. Uh, Before Via Veneto was there with all of its embassies and fancy hotels and fancy restaurants, that whole area was what we call a villa, like the Villa Pamphili or the Villa Borghese. It was an enormous the enormous grounds of a private residence. The Ludovisi Boncompagni family, I believe. I'm not sure. Maybe it was one or the other, and then they eventually intermarried, and it became both. But that little, I call it little. It, it, it isn't little, but it's little compared to what was there before because the grounds were totally, almost completely destroyed to sort of rebuild that part of the city and to modernize it and to make it commercial and all of this. So the, the actual villa where this family would have lived back 200, 300 years ago is gone. But the Villa Aurora was the hunting lodge on the grounds. So actually smaller than the massive villa that would have been there originally. And it is until tomorrow, well, when we're taping this, it is still in the private hands. It is still in the hands of that family that owned the entire area the entire neighborhood really yes and uh and it um it's going up for sale 
an auction. Yes, an auction. So interesting, according to The Guardian anyway, the property lies on a site of what was once the home of Julius Caesar. Oh, that I didn't know. It said that the monuments in the front garden include a sculpture by Michelangelo. I don't believe that. I've seen it. I've been told it's Michelangelo. I don't buy it. But yes, keep going. (laughs) It says that the property... The Ludovici family bought the property from Del Monte in 1621. Cardinal Del Monte, you recognize that name, Katie. Yes, tell us why, for those of us listening. Well, Cardinal um, Francesco Del Monte is is sort of like one of the people in history that I adore. Uh, He was Caravaggio's first and most important patron. And I, as most of you guys listening know, I'm writing... Uh, a book or have written a book about Caravaggio and it's during the period of his life when he's living with Cardinal Del Monte. And so I'm a huge Del Monte fan. My heroine (laughs) is his fictional niece. I get very excited when I talk about him just because of his connection with Caravaggio and how much he championed Caravaggio and how passionate he was about Caravaggio's work, about alchemy, about science, about modernism in the way that it existed back in those days. And he owned the villa at first the, the the small villa I don't believe he owned all of that that huge tract of land but he owned the small little you know hunting lodge for a period of time and it was his country refuge where he would go and he didn't want to be in the center of the city today Via Veneto is this you know is is very central but back in those days it was sort of in the suburbs and it um, famously he commissioned Caravaggio to paint the ceiling of his alchemical laboratory because he dabbled in alchemy and he probably did it there because it was more out of the way, less likely for people to find out about it because, of course, it was it was not looked upon um, kindly by the church to be <laughs> dabbling in alchemy. And he was a cardinal. Witchcraft. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so he has Caravaggio paint the ceiling and it is the only painting that we know of that Caravaggio has ever done on to act like an actual wall or ceiling. He only ever painted on canvas or occasionally on wood. Right, which is, of course, the reason why everybody's sending this article, because it is the only existing villa with a Caravaggio painted onto the ceiling. Yes. Just another reason why I guess everybody thinks that we should bid on it. I feel like... (laughs) (laughs) We're going to need a lot more donations if we're going to get into this fray. But (laughs) interesting thing, too, it's uh, that, of course, in the auction that's going to happen, that a lot of the things that are in the villa itself will also go with the auction because it is kind of a museum. So they I mean, and who knows if all of this is true or not? This is uh, an article in The Guardian, so who can say? But they said that some of the relics are there's a, a telescope from Galileo in there Hmm. that was gifted to the family. There is a leather box that's inscribed with a message from the chief of the British Red Cross thanking the Ludovici family for allowing the Red Cross to reside in the villa for two years during the war, Hmm. the Second World War, of course. Well, there's lots of paintings. I mean, I've been there. I just remember there being paintings just sort of like stacked up, like leaning against the wall sort of thing. Like there's like a, a Picasso leaning against the wall. Uh, maybe like a dolly somewhere in a broken frame. Whatever happens to this villa, and of course I hope just as the, the 
we, we got to get into who owns it right now, who's living there. Yeah, and yeah. we will. But if it goes to the into the hands of the Italian state, which is probably what the best thing that could happen to it, I guess, you know, they probably would restore it and turn it into, you know, a museum, maybe a museum and a library, something like that. But it'll never visiting it, you know, even if it's open for visitors, and I and I sincerely hope that it will be, but it will never be like visiting it when it's an actual place where people live. Yeah, for sure. That was very, very special. And I'm so I'm so sad that that you weren't able to to come visit. I know. Well, let's get into a little bit. And we can talk about more of the nitty gritty of the auction itself. But let's get into a little bit about who is there. So who lives there currently as of when we're recording? And her name is Princess Rita. Princess Rita Ludovisi Boncompagni, is that her full name? You probably know more about her than I do, Katie. I mean, only because I've read articles, but I know I've been around her more than you have. Right. Well, first of all, explain, I don't know where to start with this story because it's so coincidental, your connection to her. She is an American Mm -hmm. who ends up going to Italy in, I mean, she'd been to Italy prior, but I guess, at least from these articles, say that she came to Italy around age 50. And that's when she met the prince. And uh, they fell in love with each other. So she ends up marrying Prince Niccolò Boncompagni Ludovisi. I think that's right. And he is the heir of the family at that time already? Or was he? I don't know. Or was he already the? I don't know. Okay. This is Italian. And let's just also make a a mention of the fact that Italian royalty no longer truly exists. Okay, so Italy no longer recognizes officially royalty uh, or um, what's the word? I was going to say astrology, but that's not the right word. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Aristocracy. (laughs) There you go. I knew it was an A word. Ever since 1948, when Italy became a republic, they dissolved all nobility, etc., but those old families still they still use their titles. They still get a lot of respect, but they don't have any legal standing. So I should point that out that he's not he's not a true prince in the way like Prince William is a true prince. It's not like he'll be taking over. Right. I mean he he only ruled I mean, what did he rule? The the prince the prince I mean, there's no there's nothing to rule uh, in uh, in Italy anymore. You're, you know, there's the prime minister and the president. That's that's what we have. And we have the parliamentary system. There's no dukedoms. There's no principalities anymore here in Italy, although, of course, there were. I didn't realize, I guess I did re- remember seeing articles that she was, you know, when I met her, I thought she was probably about 55, mm-hmm. maybe 60, like only because I know my mother and I know how some older women can keep their looks for a long time. But I would never have guessed her true age, which has got to be closer to 70. Yeah, she's 72. Wow. According to this article. Wow. Yeah. So she moves to Rome, meets this man, falls in love. They get married. Apparently, this villa that you got to see, um, according to this article, was abandoned, she says. This is a quote. It was abandoned. There were birds flying through it. And I told Niccolo, we have to open the villa. It has to be seen by Italians and other people. They need to understand the beauty and culture of it all. Now, her husband dies in 2018. In his will, it's said, it's stated that she's supposed to be allowed to live there until she dies. And if the family, uh, his sons and her decide that they want to sell it, they need to split the money. And I think it immediately at least from what I've read, 
comes to blows where the sons don't really want to have her just living there until she dies and they can't come to any agreement and that is why the villa is going up for auction i yeah i mean i don't want to take sides here because i only know you know personally i only know the person on one side but but i remember when i was lucky enough to visit that villa and i don't know what's going to happen in the future but up until this point you had to kind of email her secretary to try to get an appointment. It wasn't the, it's not the easiest thing in the world to visit that place. The only way that I was able to do it was because someone that I had met through a English language um, high school here in Rome, he was, a, he's a professor there, he, or a teacher there, he had contact with her, he knew her, and he was having some people from his old school visiting he had got her to agree to give them a tour and he invited me to come that is how I was able to go so I'm curious since you're got to see it as a residence right whereas if it doesn't end up open to the public the rest of us are going to see it as a museum mm-hmm. but what did it feel like as a residence did it feel like like could you imagine living there yeah I could so so basically, first of all, if you've been to Rome, you know what that area around Via Veneto is like. Like I said, it's extremely posh. You know, it's one of those places in Rome where you can never find parking. Every place you walk into, like a coffee is 10 euros or something, you know, and it's just outrageous. You know, a tiny little studio apartment would be millions of euros probably. So I came in and I thought that I would uh, look for parking on the street. And I already get stressed about parking in Rome on a good day. So I sort of was like looking around, couldn't find anything, couldn't find anything. I'm late, basically. These people are waiting for me. There's a princess waiting for me right now, and I'm making everybody late, I'm thinking. And I just decided to pull into a, a pay parking lot. It's right around the corner from there. And just as I'm like going in, I get a phone call from this teacher, as I mentioned to you. And he's like, just park inside the villa, inside the grounds. And I was like, oh my gosh, if I'd known that was possible. I go out and it's like you, you're you on this street where on one side of the street is this like five-star hotel, right? This big fancy hotel with a doorman outside. And on the other side of the street is this huge brick wall that you wouldn't even really notice. It's like one of those many things in Rome where you're like, it's a giant brick wall. It's probably something important, but who knows? I basically pull up to this huge gate and there's like a couple of people standing in front of it talking because it's one of those places that's always closed And I call and they open the gate for me. And these people standing in front of the gate look at me like almost like, who is this person in this? You're another princess in Rome. Yeah, in my little very moderate car. So (laughs) So I drive in and up and it's kind of like on a hill, on a very tiny hill all its own because it was part of these pleasure grounds. And you can kind of see that everything else was just cut away. All of the other grounds were like raised down, way down. And this spot was kept up high on the original level. So you kind of got to drive around and up. And the grounds aren't huge anymore, you know, because most of them were destroyed. But it is a kind of a big grassy area. And there are some beautiful trees. And there are lots of statues around. And I park. And of course, I see, I recognized her from photographs. She was striking woman with long blonde hair. And I, you go in and it's, it's an interesting place because there definitely was a feeling of this is where we actually live, this part, these rooms, and this is where the art is on the other side. 
and we just keep that for show. And so that's how, yes, you're able to understand how they live there. There was one main room. So you walk in, I remember walking in and like the sort of atrium is very artistic. And there are frescoes by Pomorancho and I can't remember who else. I'd have to look it up. And a beautiful ceiling fresco of, which is what the villa is named for. It's a fresco of the dawn, the goddess Aurora basically riding a chariot that's pulling the sun into the sky. That's incredibly beautiful. And then you walk through there and then there's like a big living room and it really felt like a living room. It had couches in it. They were very old and dusty. There were a couple of very old rugs and lots of family pictures, lots of books, but also just like books stacked up on the floor. So it had a much more lived in feel to it very dusty though. I just remember being everything seeming very old and dust filled. So it wasn't like modernized, although it did feel lived in. And then there was a big spiral staircase that basically the first level up was all sort of art. Like, so we went up one level and we got to sort of visit those rooms, which is where I said there were sort of art stacked up against the walls. And it was very run down. It did not look like a museum at all. Um, and then you went through to another room, which is where the Caravaggio was. And I was so not expecting it because the room is tiny. And I was expecting this huge room and, you know, like 20 meters high. And instead I walk into this smallish room that looks about like the size of a dining room. I've just been waiting and waiting and waiting to see the Caravaggio. And I had seen photographs of it and it just never, in photographs, it doesn't really seem that great. It just kind of seems like, oh, this is just okay compared to mm-hmm. Caravaggio's other works, you know? Yeah. It doesn't really live up to it, maybe because it wasn't his usual technique or whatever. And I'm standing there and she just has this big smile on her face. And she had her hand on a doorknob of a door behind her. I guess she was just resting her hand. I thought that was a door that led to where the Caravaggio was. And so she's talking about it and she's talking about the history and the story behind it and why it was painted and da da da. And she just kind of glances up. And I look up and I saw it and I almost fell. (laughs) It was that much of a shock. And it was so close because the ceiling is not that high compared to where you usually see ceiling frescoes in churches and stuff. Mm. It felt so immediate, so amazing compared to what it looks like in a photograph. Totally recognizable as Caravaggio. Not, it doesn't look like, oh, this, maybe this is attributed to Caravaggio, but it's not actually his work. No, it was... It was clear. Yeah, that's interesting because I, of course, I've only seen pictures of it and I always have found it to be the least impressive thing. Yeah, it's really not. It's really not. I think definitely the surprise of it made more of an impression. Yeah. But also just that it's so much closer to you than you would think. And it's, uh, I don't know, I just think it's, it just doesn't, the photographs don't do it justice, possibly because of the angle of it. I'm not sure. How interesting, though, to live in a house that's like that, to live in a house where you kind of only inhabit one little part of it, and then the rest of it is this sort of dusty, mostly closed off, extremely opulent, old palace type place. I mean, it would be so strange. I have no idea. But there there was another level. There was at least one more level above mm-hmm. the Caravaggio level. And there was sort of like a rope across the staircase. And she said, that's, you know, that's where we live. That's the family bedrooms. And so I imagine that she's probably got another sitting room up there that's really cozy and maybe more modernized. And then, of course, bedrooms. And I assume that her bathrooms have been modernized to a certain extent. (laughs) 
I didn't see a kitchen though. I don't know if they're up there. It could be that the room downstairs is sort of like her formal reception room where she, you know, sits with guests who she doesn't really know and she has a whole other like living room and kitchen upstairs. I would assume so. Yeah, but still, can you imagine if you lived in a place where you really only occupied like a third of it? Yeah, it would be freaky. I guess I'm kind of fascinated by that notion because I I dream about that kind of thing a lot of the time where I'll be living in some house in the dream and then somewhere as the story goes along, I'll suddenly realize that there's a whole wing of the house that I didn't realize was there before. And I'm sure it's some sort of larger statement in the subconscious about the untapped places I could go or something. I don't know. But Katie, I have that same dream. Yeah, I do. I have it not frequently, but I've had it numerous times in my life. I'm in my apartment where I think I live. And like all of a sudden, yes, it's way bigger than I thought. I know. And it's such an exciting <laughs> so dream. It is. It's the best. And so imagine if you actually lived in a house. <laughs> Obviously, she probably stays up in the cozy part where she lives, but she could, you know, be upstairs in that cozy part, reading a book, drinking a glass of wine and, and decide like, you know what, I guess I'll go wander down and wander through all these old halls and flip through the art that's stacked against the wall. I mean, how crazy would that? It's like a storybook. It is. It is. I mean, well, just the fact that you, you move to Italy and you meet an Italian prince and you become a princess, that's also Yeah, a life turned out pretty good. <laughs> yeah, um, except for this yeah. recent chapter. Yeah, right. But yeah. I mean, you could get a sleeping bag and just roll it out and lie on the floor and look up at Caravaggio and fall asleep with Caravaggio over your head. That would be pretty cool. Hard to mount a lamp in that room, though. <laughs> <laughs> track lighting katie it's about no, track, no, lighting. track lighting it's the suspended lighting from one wall to the other all right the lights hanging right. in between Fair. um i remember her telling us that they had i just remember this one room had like this very strange ceiling gold leaf and stucco and lots of strange shapes it's just really bizarre and she said they had gone looking up there and like somehow broken into the ceiling and that's where they had discovered this Galileo telescope and all sorts of stuff and I just thought man there's so many great stories in this place how amazing of course I did not know that her name was Rita I did not know that she was a princess I knew her as a woman who attended the English language church that Derek and I went to when we were in Rome it's a church that's basically full of expats and a lot of them very long term, living there for over 20 years. They've had long relationships with each other. And it was in this old church, I think from the 1500s, that is never open to the public. If it was in the United States, we would consider it a national treasure. But because it's in Rome, it's just one of the ones that's like, eh, not impressive for any reason. Just keep it shut. It's a church on Sundays. Otherwise, it's just closed. And she went there. And of course, there were a lot of people that were interesting there, but she catches your attention because she's kind of, um, it's the long blonde hair, but also the way she's just sort of put together. We were hypothesizing that she was some sort of a diplomat, having never really asked her what she does for a living. Had you talked to her? I've talked to her here and there, but never had a long conversation with her. And she would always get up and say the same thing you know how in churches they have that time of sharing where you are doing a common prayer and people could just spout out what they want. Like we pray for my right. aunt who right. has cancer, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And she would every week stand up and say in a very loud voice, something along the lines of, we pray for the health and safety of our Pope 
and protection from him against his enemies. Interesting. <laughs> That's kind of <laughs> ominous. And so we were thinking, what does she know? <laughs> 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 Which is why we thought... You know, maybe she's in some sort of pi organization or the Illuminati. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and she would always be kind of dressed in like very trim black, you know, suit coat and slacks. But she was always there alone, and she would often sit there with the same group of people. Like I said, these people have been going to church together for I don't know twenty plus years, and so they kind of tend to group in the same groupings. Mm-hmm. So that's how I knew her. And then we actually talked about her kind of right around the time I think when you went to visit her in v- Villa Aurora. I went in October of 2019. Okay, so it would have been after. No, it would have been before because you said that her husband died in 2018. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying like you went and visited after. Right, exactly. We did an episode I forget what we called it, but it was basically about how sometimes traveling... I think it was called postcards. Yeah. Traveling back to the same place can be like postcards where you see the same people all the time, but you've missed years in between, so you don't really know all the linking things that happen in their story. You know where you left them, and you know where you see them again when you revisit, and then you go away again, and you know when you see them again. And... I had used her as an example because... And you still didn't know who she was at this point. Yeah, no, I didn't. And the example I gave was I left her when I moved away from Rome in 2014 as a very confident person. And when I returned to Rome, I was sitting right near her. Like I was one person over from her at church because of course I went. So you have to go see all your old people. And she was sitting in the back row and she had a gold wedding band on a chain around her neck and she was twirling it in her fingers and she was basically trying not to weep the entire service. Once we figure out who she is and we looked it up later, of course, her husband had just died when I saw her. Well, the amazing thing was you surmised in the episode before you knew anything that she was grieving probably for her late husband, for the wedding ring, you know, you sort of created a a mini narrative in your head, if I remember correctly. And then a year and a half later, I send you a message telling you that I had been to the villa and that I had met her. And I, and you said, wait a second, describe her to me. Oh no, I know what it was. I put a video up on Instagram. You could see her in it. Yeah. And you said, tell me about her. Is she this? Is she that? And I, and I described her and you said, that's her. That's how you found out. And then we went up and looked and saw when her husband died and you, you put the pu- puzzle pieces together and everything fit. Yeah. That gives me goosebumps just thinking about. Why? I don't know. I just think it's just that you that you had this connection with this person and you had this feeling about them. I mean, I guess it's not so hard to surmise that someone who looks like they're going to weep and is fingering a wedding band has just lost their husband, but that you would notice it and that you would remark on it. And then later on, we would figure out exactly who she was and, you know, this, her story. And her story is not a, a typical story. I mean, <laughs> it's an unusual one. So anyway, I, uh, I almost want to tell her that or have you tell her. I know. Well, if I ever get a chance to get back to Rome. Hopefully, you get to interview her. Which hopefully, someday soon, I will. We'll have to find her and have a conversation with her. I don't know if she'll want to have a conversation with us. We'll see. But at least I do know that she'll be at that church. If she's still in Rome, you know, she might decide to leave. That's the kind of... To turn this to a more personal note, like I said, I don't, I don't know the dynamics between her and her stepsons. 
But I think it's pretty crummy to, to try to kick your your father's widow out of the home that they lived in together. Yes, I realize it's probably worth a fortune, but I mean, if it's in his will, first of all, they just have to know that they're going against their late father's wishes, which is pretty horrible, unless he was a horrible person, which I doubt, <laughs> particularly having heard Princess Rita talk about him. And secondly, how can they even legally do that? Well, apparently the dispute, according to the AP News article, now we're pulling from a different source, the dispute on the inheritance is between the children of his first marriage. Right. And she's his third wife. Okay. So you can see how they would probably be an adult children who don't feel as close to her as if she had come in earlier in their lives, you know? But that has nothing to do with it. There's the legal side of it. She's his wife. And I'm not saying that she should get the place outright and his children should be disinherited. I think it's pretty safe. I think it's pretty fair to say that they inherit it and their descendants get to keep it in the family line, but she gets to live there while she lives. And they didn't have any children together, so she wouldn't have anyone to leave it to. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter that if they didn't have a relationship with her. She was his wife. Yeah. Yeah, and it's his wishes. Well, a judge has ordered that the villa be put up for auction, which as we said is scheduled for the 18th, so as we're recording this, it's tomorrow, but of course, it will be after the fact by you the time you hear this. It is estimated value is. Oh, God. Here we go. Drum roll. Do you want to guess? <laughs> I kind of do. I'll tell you what the starting bid is going to be, but tell me first what I you... I mean, th- just the fact that it has a Caravaggio in it that can't be taken out. I mean, Caravaggio paintings go for, what, 100 million euros? It's got to be like... It's got to be like 300 million euros. Like, I mean, maybe I'm going high. Maybe it's too... But I just can't... Okay. Caravaggio paintings are priceless. What's your final bid of what you think its estimated value is? Okay. I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go low and say 150 million euros. Oh, that's way too low. That's way too low. Okay. Well, I mean, Mm -hmm. when just, when I said 300 million, I was like, no, God, it can't be that much. It can't be that much. Its estimated value is 471 million euros. Okay. I went way low. Which would be $533 million. I think a lot of that is just the Caravaggio. The starting bid is set at 353 million euros. So that's where they're going to start. So send in your donations, people. We want to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Even though it's too late. Send in. (laughs) Jeez. But it also notes on the auction site that about 11 million euros in renovations will be necessary okay. to make it comply with current standards. Mm-hmm. So if you buy this for 471 million euros, you also have to put in 11 million more to be able to renovate it. Yeah, Katie, if you have 471 millions, million euros, you have another 11 lying around for the renovations, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I mean, that's so much money. I mean, if you think about like buildings in New York City, like entire buildings sometimes cost that in New York City. Well, we'll see what happens. But I do think it's a pity that I never got back to Rome. It's this darn pandemic. If I had come back when I was supposed to in April 2020, we could have actually taken you inside. That was our hope was that we would have taken all of you listening Mm. inside the villa itself. But unfortunately, it is not to be. Well, you can listen to Bittersweet Moment, Villa Aurora. I talk about it just after I'd been there. So I, my memory is very, very fresh. 
And I will dig through the archives of my stories and try to find some of those videos and I'll repost them so that you can see some of these places and maybe get a glimpse of Princess Rita yourself. Yes. So if you're not already following us on social media, yes, go run, (laughs) run, run to your phone which is probably right beside you. <laughs> the Bittersweet Life podcast is our Instagram handle. I am a little bit sad for the princess, a little bit. I'm quite a lot sad for her because not only did she lose her beloved husband, because it really did sound like it was a love match, but also the fact that, you know, she it was her, you know, it was her dream to uh, to bring this place back to light, to to share it with the Italian people. I'm sure they did some renovations on it and that she's being forced to sell. I didn't realize that it was a sort of, you know, the government had made this decision. I really feel bad for her. And I hope she gets her fair share of the profit because that's only right in my opinion. Well, and I hope that in somehow in moving on that there's some kind of peace or new chapter in that. So mm-hmm. who knows? Anyway, wishing for the best, of course. And thank you to all of you who sent this article in. <laughs> I love that your your mind sparks whenever you see the name Caravaggio. Uh, enough <laughs> to think of us. <laughs> That's pretty lovely. You can always email us bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com or contact us through the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. You could sponsor this show and reach educated, curious, and compassionate listeners all over the world. Visit thebittersweetlife.net and click support to get the conversation started. <laughs>